How beautiful indeed is the body of Christ. How beautiful it is to see all of you here with us in the sanctuary today. How beautiful it is to know that we are joined online by all of you as well. And we're just so glad to be gathered wherever we are in order to come together and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And so welcome to you. A quick word about gathering in person as we, uh, as we continue to do so for uh, the first time in a long, long time, right? Did you know that today is the one-year anniversary of the last time that we gathered fully before everything fell apart? It was, uh, it was March 15th that we began live streaming for the first time, and so that will be next week. Uh, next week, Sunday, will be a year since we started live streaming. It's hard to believe it's been, what a year. <laughs> what a year it's been. I'm thankful that by God's grace and the, the miracles of modern medicine and the tireless efforts of first responders and, and our healthcare community, um, it looks as if we are slowly coming out of that and we are able to gather in person uh, again. Just again, a word about that. I said this last week. I, we want you to be able to engage as fully as possible from whatever, from whatever place that works best for you. Okay, so if that's here in the sanctuary, we're so glad that you're here. If that's at home, we are so glad that you are tuning in and worshiping with us. And so however it is that you can most fully participate in worship, most fully connect with God, that's what we want for you. For some of you who are here in the sanctuary, I imagine it's emotional to be back in this place. Even just walking through the doors, the smells, the sights, the stained glass, the sun shining through, it's emotional to be back here worshiping in person. So I just want to acknowledge that and, and welcome you back into this place. A um, couple of guidelines from the health and safety team, just to let you know and let you all know the precautions that we're taking. Um, the, the governor and the bishop had updated the requirements about gathering in person, the recommendations about gathering in person. So the current number, uh, according to the bishop, is up to 250 people may gather indoors uh, as long as you are at up to 30% the capacity of the space that you're gathering in, okay? And so we've adjusted accordingly. For now, we just said that's going to be 100 people. Um, we may adjust that. Obviously, the sanctuary seats like 800, so we have room to expand if we want to open the balconies at some point, but right now we're not doing that. Um, we're staying at, at 100 just for now um, because we felt like that was a reasonable precaution to, to re-enter into in-person worship, and that may adjust as we, as we go along. But um, those are still, those are the new updated recommendations, uh, as well as just the continued mandate that we not have congregation singing, so I know it's hard. I know it's hard, especially when it's one of your favorite hymns. Uh, you're free to hum along if you like, and we're just going to enjoy being led uh, by our worship team, and we thank them uh, for doing that this morning and always. But it is good uh, to be back in person. Uh, thank you, Hayden, for being our crucifer this morning. Thank you to Emma and Anne, my daughters, for being our acolytes this morning. Uh, and I just have to give a shout out. Emma is 10 years old today, so happy birthday to you, Emma. We love you. It's great to be gathered together in worship this morning. Let's pray as we go to, the, go to God's word. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So when I began first grade, I guess I was about, what, seven years old in, in first grade, and six turning seven, something like that. When I began first grade, I began the, uh, the very scary task for a first grader of riding the bus. 
to school. Does anybody remember how scary that was? When you're like this tall and you're riding the bus with hundreds of other students um, showing up at the bus stop and there's like 40 buses that I had to choose from, I had to make sure I got on the right one. Um, That's a daunting task for a young person, for a first grader. Um, And I remember that day really well, the first time that I showed up to ride the bus. And I I kind of made my way over to the the bus number that I was supposed to get on and, and and I walked on to the bus to ride to school for the first time. I looked around and I didn't see anybody that I knew. And I was just like, I really hope this is going to the right place. (laughs) And as I started to walk down the aisle in the back of the bus, I saw my best friend, Brian. And I thought, yes, excellent. I'm going to go sit with Brian. And so so I walk over and and I go and 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 I'm just so glad to see somebody familiar that I know. And I walk up and I, and I get ready to sit down and I, and I sit down next to him and I said, hey man, long time no see. And he looks at me and I notice right away, this is not Brian. <laughs> and this little, this young man says to me, who are you? And then as if sensing my already like off the charts insecurity about riding the bus for the first time, I'm this big. He's, he felt like he was 10 feet tall. I don't know how big he was. He felt like he was 10 feet tall. He must have sensed some weakness in me and he, he like moved in for the, for, the, for the kill, I guess. And he, he said, who are you? And I kind of stammered and just looked at, I, uh, um, hey, hi. <laughs> and he said, I know what you are. You're just a dork head. Now, he didn't even say dorkhead. He said something else, which my son says is potty language, and we don't use that. <laughs> Who are you? You're just a dorkhead. And I was crushed, as you can well imagine. I'm already anxious. He asked me, who are you? I'm like, wait, you're not the guy that I thought was my best friend. You're just a dorkhead. That was a rough introduction to riding the school bus to school as a little person. Who are you? That's the question we're going to spend time on this morning in Scripture. As we continue our sermon series, Redeeming Our Mess, we're going to look at the question of identity. And we're going to talk about who are you? Who do you say that you are? And who does God say that you are? And which voice are you going to listen to? That's where we're headed today. We're going to begin in Scripture in Genesis chapter 11, starting at verse 1. So I invite you, if you have your Bibles, to open them up to Genesis chapter 11. Uh, The words will be on the screen as well. You can follow along with that. Genesis chapter 11, we're going to talk about who are you. Here we go. Verse 1, now the whole world had one language and common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, 
If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. This is why it was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So I want to back up just a little bit. Maybe I should have started there, but we'll, we'll go back anyway. Uh, just for a little bit of context behind this story, the Tower of Babel. Remember when we started in the beginning, all was well and good between humanity and God. They lived together in the garden, walked together, talked together, did life together, were connected in unity with one another and with God. Things were good. Didn't take very long. Uh, that was Genesis 1 and 2. Didn't take very long. We get to Genesis 3, and we notice that unity is destroyed as sin enters the world. And all of a sudden, humanity is subject to other voices having a say in asking that question, who are you? Instead, it's not just God and humanity. There is another force at work, the force of sin that breaks the unity that we had, that disrupts the unity, the, the relationship that we had with God. A couple chapters later, uh, it doesn't take very long. In Genesis uh, chapter 6 and 7, we hear the story of Noah and the flood. God says this uh, in Genesis chapter 6, that the hearts of human beings were evil all the time. And God regretted making us. Those are pretty strong words. God regretted making us. And so he finds a servant in Noah. God finds a servant in Noah and, and sets up the plan for the flood and the animals and, the, and everybody's on the ark. You know that part of the story. The flood comes. And after it's all over, God makes a promise. I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to destroy the whole earth, even though <laughs> sometimes you're listening to other voices. Even though there's evil in your hearts, I made you for good. So I'll never destroy you again in this way. And, and, and in chapter 9, Genesis chapter 9, God blessed Noah and his sons and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole earth. And then we get to Genesis chapter 10 and that gives us the, the genealogy of Noah and that brings us up to Genesis 11 where we started today, the Tower of Babel. And so we notice in the beginning, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 2, it says, As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Now, interesting. Uh, of course they would find and, and expand and, and settle and move on. But looking at, uh, I, I was looking at Walter Brueggemann as a, as a contemporary scholar and theologian. I love how he interprets this passage. That was not the plan necessarily for them to settle and become comfortable. Right? The plan was be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole earth. So that's one of the problems right there. They, they've, they've already decided we're going to do our own thing. And it's made even more clear in verse 4, right? When they said to each other, come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we make a name for ourselves. So that we make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered. 
So there's a sense in there that there's this, almost this rebellion against the idea that God had for our relationship with God, right? Our relationship was to be in communion. Our relationship was to be in dialogue, to be in, to be in relationship. And God would take care of us and meet our needs. But the people said, hey, I, I don't know if I want to go along with that plan. This, this place looks pretty good. Let's, let's settle here and let's build a tower so everybody knows who we are and so that we don't get spread out throughout the land. Well, that wasn't God's plan for them. Verse 7, uh, it says, As God comes down and, and decides to deal, come let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. And there's an interesting verb in there uh, behind the word they will not understand each other. And it's shema. Have you ever heard shema before, the Hebrew word shema? It means Listen. In fact, it's one of the most important verbs in all of Scripture because the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6 is the most important prayer of the Hebrew, of the Jews, of, of practicing Jews today. It's the prayer that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the verb that's used in verse 7 when, when it says that God came down and says, Let's confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So they will not understand each other. So they will not listen. To one another. So they will not listen to one another. It's more than just comprehensive understanding of what's going on. It's actually taking the time to listen and understand the relationship that they're in with one another and with God. And don't we ever get in trouble <laughs> when we don't listen to one another? Um, twice this week, I was surprised by my wife with some news about some plans that we had. Um, the reason I was surprised is because apparently I didn't listen the first time when she told me about them. And so she was like, hey, remember, we're doing this tonight. And I was like, whoa, 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 what? I don't deal well uh, with change. <laughs> so I like things the way I like them. I don't deal well with change. And so when she said, hey, remember, we're doing this tonight. Oh, and by the way, we're doing that tomorrow night. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a second. And she said, don't even. Don't even, we talked about this. And then as if to like affirm her in some way, unbeknownst to, to her, uh, Danae and I, were, we were, all of us were sitting around last night uh, after dinner, cleaning up the kitchen. And, uh, and, and Emma was looking at a book that she had received for her birthday about just sort of like useless facts, but interesting facts in the world. And Danae added another one. She said, well, you know that women talk twice as much as men do. And I in my head, not out loud, thought, well, that sounds about right. In my head, because I know better. I'm going to say that out loud. And just as I'm kind of getting this congratulatory sort of, yeah, isn't that the truth? Um, Danae, I think she could sense that. And she says, well, you know, women talk twice as much as men because they have to explain everything twice. <laughs> okay. Touche. We get in trouble when we don't listen to one another. We get in trouble when we don't listen to one another. And we especially get in trouble when we don't listen to God. And we see that throughout Scripture, right, up until today, <laughs> that we don't listen to God. We have a history. God's people have a history of not listening to God. I mentioned last week the name Israel, God's chosen people. The name itself means struggles with God. Struggles with God. We struggle to listen to God. We don't, uh, often we don't listen, we don't obey 
what God tells us is best for us. And even that word, obedience, the Latin word for obedience has, has the same root as the word for listen. So the idea of listening and obeying are one in the same. We're in the midst of the season of Lent, and it's an opportunity for us to take time to reflect, to listen, to be aware of the ways in which we are not connecting with the Lord in the way that we have been made to, to repent of those ways and to turn back to God and to listen with all of our hearts. God makes it so that the the people in the story of the Tower of Babel can't listen. They can't shema. They can't listen to one another. And so then God scatters them, which was the plan all along. Because they had said, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's take control here. Let's do this. We don't need God. We can do it on our own. And I wonder, how often do we feel the same? Let's make a name for ourselves. I got this. I can do this, God. Thanks. I'm just going to take control. And we don't listen. How do we derive our identity? How do, we, how do we answer? What are the things that we put stock in, in terms of answering the question, who are you? Is it a job? Is it our work that we, that we do? Is that how we derive our identity? Is that how we answer the question, who are you? I remember when I was, um, I had worked in, in the computer engineering world for about 10 years or so, and I moved back to Michigan um, to live with my family. I just felt called to do that. I felt like it was time to move back closer to my family. I'd been out in Colorado and, uh, and I moved back. And for almost a year, I didn't have a job. And that was by design. I wanted to take some time. I had savings. I had ways to, uh, to get by. Um, but every time somebody asked me, hey, so, so what do you do? Do you know how hard it is to answer that when the answer is, oh, nothing. I'm just, I'm just hanging out. I'm just waiting to figure out what God wants for me next. You're, you're what? <laughs> Nobody does that. Like, what does that mean? It's really hard. And so eventually I just got tired of, of telling people, I'm just waiting for what's next. And so I just said, well, I'm doing some, I, I'm an independent consultant. People didn't question that. Like, what am I consulting in? What am I doing? I mean, I was doing some, some software consulting and that was fine. So it was true. Um, but I was uncomfortable <laughs> with people being uncomfortable asking me, what do you do? I was insecure in my identity, even though I knew very clearly what I was doing. I felt like to make them feel better about my answer to that question, I had to come up with something. Who are you and what are you doing? Do we derive our identity from our work? Where else do we derive identity? Is it from our status, our power? Do we derive identity from, um, from our interactions online with one another? Is that how we tell our story? Is that how we answer who are we? This is a whole other sermon, by the way, but I'm just going to mention it here. We're talking about shame and guilt next week, and we might get into that more. Know that people read who you say you are online. Can I just remind you of that? Your friends, their friends, other people. So if you say that you are a follower of Jesus, let's comment, let's post, let's like in ways that reflect the fruit of the Spirit. Amen? Amen. All right, like I said, that's a whole other sermon. Sorry, that one was free. Um, we might get back to that one more later.
But what is it that we, where is it that we derive our identity? Who are we? Is it from our accomplishments and any, any awards that we receive? Is that where we derive our identity? Is it from our productivity, from what we're able to produce, what we're able to sell, what we're able to uh, do at, at, at work or at home? I imagine most of us have really struggled with that question, who are you, over the last year? I know I have. It's been a year since we met without concern for COVID. And all of a sudden everything fell apart and we all had to ask the question, who, who am I now? If I'm not doing this thing that I used to do, if I'm not interacting with these people in the way that I used to, if I'm not uh, taking care of this person or, or checking in on this person in the way that I used to be able to do, who, who am I? And it's been tough to navigate that transition and that change as we try to seek to, to be faithful to who God has called us to be in the midst of a time when we have to do everything differently. Who are you? Who are you? Well, in order to help us answer that question, let's take a look at some more scripture that explains how God answers that question. Who does God say that you are? The best answer to that comes through our baptism. In our baptism, we are affirmed as children of God. We are welcomed into God's family. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of our redemption, and we are declared to be children of God. When we look in scripture about baptism, we see that even Jesus was baptized. And in the beginning of the gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there are accounts of Jesus's baptism. And in all three of them, we hear that this is what happened. Jesus went into the water, came back out, was baptized by John the Baptist, and there was a voice from heaven. Do you remember what that voice said? God from heaven, there was, there was a dove that came down like the one up there in our stained glass, beautiful stained glass. And there was a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And the thing I love about that passage and that understanding of what baptism means for us is that this happened in the very beginning of the Gospels, the very beginning of Jesus's ministry. In fact, it was before he had even performed any miracles. It was before he had even preached at all. It was before he had even healed anyone. We hear these words, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And that's what God says to us. That's how God answers the question, who are you? You are a beloved son or daughter of the living God. That's who God says we are. We are beloved. So God eventually redeemed the mess that happened at Babel. You know what God did? You know how God redeemed that mess of not being able to talk to one another? God gave us people who could design software like Rosetta Stone so that we could learn all these new languages 
Is anybody else getting bombarded with those messages since the first of the year? Hey, binge all the languages you want for your whole life. Like I learned hola, como estas in the colors from my experience with Rosetta Stone and they want me to learn like all the languages. I'm, I'm, I'm good, I'm, I'm good. Um, I'm kidding. That's not how God redeemed Babel at all. Um, God redeemed Babel through the New Testament story of the arrival of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, we hear that, um, that the Spirit arrived, right? And, and there, were, there was a rushing wind and there were flames of fire on, on the disciples' heads. And, and instead of, and, and there were people that were gathered in the time from all over the world. They had come to Jerusalem and they had gathered from all over the place. And yet, when they heard one another speaking, did you hear that? When they heard one another, they heard it as if it was in their own native language. And so we see redemption of the, the confused hearing that we saw at Babel. Here we see an influx of the Holy Spirit, the birth of the Holy Spirit inside of us. The birth of the church is the gift of communication so that we can be restored to correct hearing. And we can hear from God directly in our hearts. Let's take a look at Romans chapter 8. It says something more about this spirit inside of us. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17 says this. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children of God, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we might also share in his glory. We are adopted sons and daughters through our baptism in Christ. And that word for adoption as sons, that, that means that the, the thrust behind it is that we have inherited everything according to the legal status of the firstborn son, which in that time meant everything. You get the whole deal. You get everything that the firstborn son gets. Well, who's the firstborn son? Jesus Christ is the firstborn son of all creation. So we get everything that Jesus gets. We get the same redemption that Jesus gets. We get the same uh, glorified, uh, after he's crucified and resurrected, glorified body that Jesus gets. We get the relationship that Jesus gets one with God the Father. We get that same inheritance forever. We get eternal life. That is our inheritance. That's what our adoption as sons and daughters of Christ means we get everything. And by the Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is kind of a, a, almost like a slang word for daddy. It's that close. It's that close of a, of a restored relationship, of a redeemed relationship that we can say to God, Daddy. Last night, uh, my family was watching a movie while I was finishing working on the sermon 
It's usually what happens on Saturday night. Um, but they were working, at, they, were, they were watching a movie, and all of a sudden my, my little boy, James, who's four years old, came into the room, and I said, hey, hey bud, what are you doing? I, I thought you were watching the movie. And he said, Daddy, I just wanted to be with you. <laughs> right? Oh, it just, oh, it just hit my heart. I said, well, sure, buddy, you want to be with me? What do you want to do? And he said, well, can I just cuddle with you while you do your work on the computer? I said, absolutely, buddy. And so he sat down next to me, next to his daddy, just so he could be with me. And how God must long for that kind of relationship with you and me, that we would just say, God, I just want to be with you. Daddy, can I just, can I just hang out while you do what you're doing in the world? Oh, what a beautiful image. By the Spirit, we are sons and daughters. We are no longer slaves to fear. So we no longer have to make a name for ourselves. We no longer have to construct an identity based on all these things that we think we need to be. God makes a name for us. Christian, child of God, beloved. We no longer have to fear not being enough. And so every time we hear those other voices that come from somewhere other than God, they might come from ourselves. Sometimes our our worst critic, our own inner critic is our worst, right? They might come from someone else. They might come from the enemy. Whatever those voices are that come and tell us you are not blank enough. Whenever we hear that phrase, whenever we sense that language welling up in us, we need to remember, verse 16 tells us, the Holy Spirit testifies to our spirit, saying, you are a beloved child of God. I am a beloved child of God. Will you say that with me? I am a beloved child of God. That's what the Spirit communicates to us if we're willing to listen. And so no longer do you have to hear, you're not working hard enough. I am a beloved child of God. You're not qualified for that job. What does the Spirit say? I am a beloved child of God. You don't deserve that blessing. You you don't have enough money. I am a beloved child of God. You're powerless to change your situation. I am a beloved child of God. You're not being a very good friend right now. I am a beloved child of God. You're not good enough. You're not not good looking enough or, or beautiful enough. I am a beloved child of God. You're not getting enough done. You're not producing enough at home or at work or around the house. I am a beloved child of God. You're not a good enough mom or dad or grandpa or neighbor or aunt or uncle. I am a beloved child of God. How about this one? You are failing at educating your children. (laughs) How many times has anyone felt like that? Your children or grandchildren? No, I am a beloved child of God. Of God, even in a pandemic, and especially in a pandemic. You're wasting your life. You are not fulfilling your purpose. What are you doing? Who are you? The Spirit testifies, I am a beloved child 
of God. You're a dorkhead. No, no, I am a beloved child of God. Friends, who are you? Who do you say that you are? And who does God say that you are? And which voice are you going to listen to? May you listen always. May this voice always be the loudest one that you hear. Would you say it with me one last time? I am a beloved child of God. Amen.